Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Happy July. I know it's July already, and we're still here in our home offices uh, with no real end in sight. The uh, COVID-19 metrics uh, nationwide are kind of going in the wrong direction in terms of a quote-unquote return to normal. As some of the experts predicted would happen in the face of uh, reopening and such. So um, here we are doing the podcast over GoToMeeting and pressing on. Um, How's your team doing and uh, what should our readers be looking for in uh, the weeks to come? Yeah, so a couple very cool things from the team. Um, First of all, we published last night online the uh, uh, latest issue of Naval History Magazine, the July-August issue, which features on the cover a great shot of Tom Hanks from the movie Greyhound. Uh, We talked about that a little bit, uh, but that's the the meat of that issue is a package of content focused on World War II convoy operations, an interview that we did a few months ago with Aaron Schneider, the director of Greyhound. Um, We had a nice piece by uh, Dr. Craig Simons, who uh, was one of the advisors to Hanks uh, on that movie and and on the screenplay. Uh, So there's some great content in that latest issue of Naval History Magazine, and it should be in stores if you dare to go out to a Barnes and Noble or you know any other place where you pick up uh, newsstands, um, but uh, Naval History is is out as is the July issue of uh, Proceedings. So both those got published online last night and uh, are live now, so everyone can uh, access those. A lot of great content in the uh, July issue of uh, Proceedings. We'll be pushing out a newsletter to uh, 60, 70,000 uh, of our fans this afternoon. That uh, where it's my editor editor's page. Just highlighting all the content uh, in the, uh, the July uh, proceedings. We have a couple, three, I think, at least uh, prize-winning essays. We've got uh, Pedestrian John Miner's uh, Enlisted Essay Contest prize winner. We've got the uh, uh, Emerging and Disruptive Technologies uh, Essay Contest winner by Dr. Williams, who's a Naval Postgraduate School professor, uh, talking about how um, the, uh, the, the world is changing with the advent of small satellites being able to provide sort of uh, omniscient vision of the uh, world's ocean uh, to um, people around, you know, to a- any nation that wants to pay for those satellite services. And then we've got um, oh, a number of other things, including a piece by one of our board of directors uh, members, uh, Admiral Sandy Winnefeld, from her vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a uh, very sobering piece called Winter is Coming. Uh, we're hoping to get uh, Amber Winnefeld on the podcast uh, this month as well. So lots of great content in both Proceedings and Naval History that just uh, hit our website last night. And the graphics team did its usual bang-up job with picking the cover of Proceedings. This month is a very poignant, dramatic photo of a recruit wearing a mask. Also, let's uh, put out not to get into politics, but let's put out uh, a BZ to an alum of the editorial board, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath, uh, Hornet pilot, Naval Academy graduate, soccer standout, women's soccer standout, won the Kentucky Senate primary. It was a tight race there in, in into the end game there, and she emerged victorious. And so she'll face uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell in the, uh, in the fall election. So uh, congratulations to Amy. 
Another thing that's happening here around Annapolis, we've mentioned uh, some of this before, but it's now actually happening. Plebe summer has started. This is a weird year because of COVID-19, and the plebes uh, are showing up in four different staggered groups, about 200-ish per group. There's no induction ceremony in, in Tecumseh Court. They basically get dropped off by their parents, and they go into a two-week isolation period. And uh, obviously, they're tested a bunch of times uh, during that period. And then they'll come out and do a five-week, uh, as normal as possible, plebe summer. We normally brief them one platoon at a time about what the Naval Institute is and, and what the profession writ large is about. But we won't be doing that this summer um, because they are kind of like bub- bubble boys and girls with, with uh, you know, sarcophagus around them. To, and the outside world is not allowed uh, to, to pierce that bubble. So... It, this really is an experiment, just kind of like, can we get back to live sports? Is there going to be a intercollegiate football season? Is uh, Major League Baseball going to play? You know, the PGA Tour has started again with a spike in coronavirus um, outbreak. And, and how do you handle that? Does the player and his caddy get, you know, do they have to go back in isolation? Or, you know, how, how does this go? So we're learning as we go along in this new challenging environment that we're all living in. And that includes the Naval Academy. And so the Naval Academy is this experiment. And a few episodes ago, we were not, it wasn't clear what, what time plebe summer would happen. It wasn't clear whether fall semester would be face to face. And so the superintendent, Admiral Buck, made, made the call. Look, we cannot do the mission of the Naval Academy in a distance learning construct. We can do the academics, arguably. Um, I was just talking to a, uh, a, a, midshipman wrestler um, who is doing summer school because he can't do youngster crews. And so get this, Bill, he's taking Calc 3 and physics during the summer just for grins. I'm thinking, (laughs) Calc 3, that was hard. I almost flunked Calc 3. That's the hardest of the Calc battery for sure. And so it's like the good deals just keep on coming for the mids as they're dealing with the coronavirus. So it's not like you have the summer off. You get to spend the summer in front of your computer trying not to flunk Calc 3 instead of being on Youngster Cruise. So they're upbeat, they're dealing with it, but we are really learning things that the nation can leverage in terms of the success or failure of things like Plebe Summer and the reform of the brigade. Uh, So we'll keep the listeners of the Proceedings Podcast abreast of how this develops. Um, But so far, I think three of the four have, uh, have launched and they're underway into their isolation period, um, and uh, I, we'll see what happens. Yeah, definitely, we'll see what happens. Uh, one other news before we get to our guest: uh, so USNI News reported today that uh, the Commander Six Fleet uh, Vice Admiral Franchetti uh, turned over to Vice Admiral Black uh, in uh, Naples, Italy, and uh, so Commander Six Fleet is turned over again, and uh, Vice Admiral Franchetti wrote a piece for us that we published uh, as on Proceedings Online today. Uh, she wrote it on the eve of her uh, change of command, um, recalling a piece that, a very similar piece that Vice Admiral, the legendary Vice Admiral Isaac Kidd wrote in 1972, a Proceedings article called The View from the Bridge of the Sixth Fleet Flagship. And uh, Admiral Franchetti sort of gave an update on how the world in the Sixth Fleet, uh, European, AOR, AFRICOM, et cetera, has changed since 1972, since Admiral uh, Kidd wrote his piece, what's changed, what hasn't changed, the threats 
that they're facing over there, the uh, tools that they use, the importance of the alliance, et cetera. So nice, nice piece, but also really nice to see her hearkening back to uh, her, you know, multi-generational predecessor before Admiral Isaac Kidd uh, and what he wrote in 1972. So a uh, very cool piece. I'd, I'd encourage our listeners to check it out. It's called A View from the Bridge, 48 Years Later, and you can find it on the uh, Proceedings homepage uh, at the Naval Institute. So um, let's get to our guest now. Joining us from Mayport, Florida, is Navy Lieutenant Commander Desmond Walker. Uh, he is a nu- nuclear power qualified surface warfare officer, uh, and he wrote for us uh, in June a piece that we published online uh, called The Burden of the Black Naval Officer. Uh, Desmond, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So uh, just give our listeners a, a, a you know, 30,000 30, foot perspective on uh, why you wrote this and then you, you know the main points that are in your uh, commentary. Shortly after the, the killing of George Floyd um, and you saw the, the, the unrest throughout the country, um, being a military member, I, I was very conflicted. Um, a lot of mixed emotions, you know, angry, upset, frustrated, confused, um, having a desire to want to do more, but limited because of the chosen career field. Um, and I decided to uh, actually I went out on my patio one uh, one day and just started writing all these different emotions I had. And then uh, a friend reached out and said, hey, this is an opportunity to to write about. Um, what's going on? Do you know anyone? Are you interested or uh, do you know anyone that would be interested? And I said, hey, well, I've been writing. Uh, let me put something together. And the end result was 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 what was published. Um, and the the reason why it's even titled The Burden of a Black Naval Officer is uh, a lot of it centered on my personal journey. Um, been in Navy 23 years. Um, have been I've had a blessed uh, career thus far. I've been exposed to a lot of different things um, within the military, especially starting out enlisted to transition to becoming an officer and then the different jobs I've had at sea. Um, and I've been involved at the tactical level, been op- uh, involved um, at the strategic level and at the operational level. Um, and in the, all of those different jobs, I was always very deliberate in trying to understand our Navy organization in a better way because I was passionate about also in every future job being able to explain to my teams why our mission was so important. I didn't want I didn't want to just rely on because I'm the boss or because I'm in charge, my team go do X. I wanted to always have some better context of what was being uh, what our mission uh, was and. In the context of inclusion and diversity, again, going back to, to my feelings in, in, in the moment, uh, I felt a little frustrated with the disconnect between what Navy policy had been with respect to inclusion and diversity and what the actions were of people in various leadership positions. And, and that leadership position, I think, is, very, is, is a relative term uh, because you have LPOs that are leaders. L is leading in the petty officer. You have division officers, department heads, commanding officers, and you have commanders. All of them are leading some type of team. And what I what I had noticed was, regardless of the scope of the leadership role, uh, the actions or the execution of the policies didn't 
necessarily match what the strategic communications were. And so, and I decided to frame that conversation um, between uh, CNO Zumwalt and CNO Gilday because I think the, the emotional piece of it spoke to the moment because that's what I was dealing with, our, what was going on in our country. The emotional response of years, of decades of miscommunication, misunderstandings, certain organizations claiming that we've solved diversity, certain organizations saying there's more to do. And for the African-American, it is, well, no, we still haven't done enough. It's always been, you haven't done enough. And I wanted to draw that, I want to draw out that comparison and really highlight the lack of that honest and real conversation in a framework that would make sense to the, to the target audience for us and I. So what, what form would that conversation take? Um, does the, um, cause you have a sentence here. You say some may feel things have gotten better, but I'm certain a great number of black officers in the Navy feel little has truly changed. So, so let me ask you to answer that. Cause I'm, I imagine that part of your, when you say you're conflicted, so let's say you, you drive through the gate of Mayport and you're in, in your command area and you're, you know, you, let's say you're wearing your whites and you got your shoulder boards on and you're treated a certain way. And then you get into civvies and you drive into Jacksonville and maybe there's a palpable, I'm not trying to project this, but maybe there's a, a much different way uh, where now you're just a black American, right? And, and the average whether it's a, a storekeeper, a gas station attendant, a cop, whomever, uh, absent the uniform, he may not give you the respect you're due as a function of your accomplishments. Uh, and, and so where, where are you? What's your temperature with respect to that? And, and let me ask you again to answer that in two ways. So we talk about what else there is to do. And this is kind of the same conversation we had with Marcus a few episodes ago, um, who you mentioned in the article uh, Commander Kennedy. Um, so what is it? Because I think you do a cool job of talking about how we're never lacking for a CNO or a lawmaker to say, here's what we need to do and, and quote Martin Luther King and, and we get all teary eyed and then we just leave it there. But what what have we done locally? What have we done to call it even the soft racism of a work center? You know, that's hard to do it. And, and as you say, the burden on the black officer particularly is you guys shoulder that burden at all times. Where are we on on both of those fronts? So what else there is to do? Um, just being quite frankly, people need to be, people must openly talk about the things that they're most afraid to talk about. Um, when it comes to, I'll use the relationships again, the, the white leader um, engaging with the black subordinate, uh, there's a, we don't have enough conversations where the white person opens themselves up to the criticism that they know they're going to get when they challenge the black subordinate. Instead, they will just not address what the black subordinate needs to hear so they can be better and improve themselves. They will instead not say anything, but then when it's time to write the evaluation for that person, that person is below average because they didn't do everything that they needed to do. But it, on conversely, the African-American subordinate 
because of the burden and the and the rank structure is more times than not is not going to push and say please please provide me the actual guidance to be better what else can i do to be successful they're not going to do that they are looking they're looking to be told what else can i do to be better they want that mentorship they want that intrusive leadership as commander candy talked about um and that just doesn't happen because somebody doesn't want to be called a racist. They don't want to be called. They don't. They don't want to be singled out for dis- being discriminate for for being discriminatory. Um, they, they'd rather just not address those issues. But at the same time, we also need our leaders, regardless of your background, to to acknowledge that the way you were raised, your your personal value system actually does impact your leadership and if there is no formal training that aligns to widen your aperture on your blind spots on your biases to ensure that you are being fair across the board again regardless of that subordinates um skin color until we can have those open and honest individual conversations then the biases the biases will will usually take priority and then the the leadership the mentorship relationships will then default to the system next in place and the point of my article was to highlight that our system is predicated off of a 400 year history it's great that cno uh the zgram 66 said what he said in 1970 but I wanted to highlight that how here it is 50 years later, we've done a lot of saying the right stuff, but the execution of the policies did not go as far as they could because the system allowed people to bring their own personalities and their own values to those individual engagements. That's why the conversations are so important because we – we haven't had we don't have the real conversations because of the fear of the consequences and the repercussions of highlighting that those things are wrong. And that's, I'll just add that. It, but at the same time, that's why I said in my article, I was disheartened and I was encouraged by what our CNO, current CNO said. I was encouraged because he said it. He, he, he literally said racism and discrimination exists in our Navy. I can tell you the African-American, the black American community is like, oh, my God, yes, finally, <laughs> somebody said it, somebody said it in the open forum, right? You know, um, that 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 is, a to me, that was a defining moment. But at the same time, I was disheartened because, okay, yeah, CNO 50 years ago kind of said the same thing. And look what the system produced when you go decade by decade and we allow the systems to just operate without questioning the progress and where the progress was coming from. Desmond, you're bringing up, uh, uh, you're bringing up a, a, a point about the difficult conversations. It's a little bit different than what Commander, uh, Coast Guard Commander Kennedy said on the podcast a few weeks ago. He was saying, look, we're, we're all, we African-American service members are reeling right now from the violence, from George Floyd's death, et cetera. And we're wearing a mask to hide that. And he was saying to uh, leaders at all levels uh, that to, it basically saying, you know, 
you could help this situation by having a conversation. Just ask the African-Americans in your command, how are you doing? How are you handling this? Right. And so that's a that's a personal conversation. That's a very caring conversation. What I hear you talking about is a more uh, it's a professional conversation centered around um, feedback, professional feedback, whether it's the enlisted evaluation or the officer fitness report. And I can tell you that as a you know retired now white captain, Navy captain, there was fear in my uh, you know in my group of colleagues. I would I would say that I'll, I'll share this honestly that we often male leaders in the Navy of my year group um, had a fear that if we had an African American or or a minority person working for us who wasn't meeting the standards that we could be subject to, um, you know, calls or, or um, accusations of, uh, you know, of being racist or being biased. If we, if we called somebody up short, if we said, Hey, you're not meeting the standard that that person, if an African-American or Hispanic might say, well, you know, Captain Hamlet just doesn't like me because of the color of my skin. Right. So there's that fear on, on the side of the white people. Right. It was also sure. true for, it was also true when women were first integrated into warships in the Navy and suddenly yes. had women on aircraft carriers and, 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 and other ships. There was this fear that, well, if you provided honest feedback, that a woman wasn't meeting the standard that you could also be, uh, you, you could have that sort of, uh, uh, label, you know, put on you, right. You could, you could be right. called somebody who is a sexist, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. so, so there's that side of the fear, but you're saying, you know, on the, on the other side, you know, it, it's very difficult for a minority person who is the junior in the relationship to know whether they're meeting the standards. If somebody doesn't say, Hey, you're not, you're not meeting the standard. Right. And so to ask for that honest feedback, um, can be a difficult side of it as well. And so, you know, Commander Kennedy was saying, you got to have this this difficult conversation. How are you doing? And you're saying, hey, you got to have the difficult conversation. No kidding, because it's in your article. You know, you're not advocating for standards to be lowered. You're saying, hey, hold everybody to the same standard. But you need to explain that standard and you need to be you need to be fearless. You, uh, you know, white leaders you need to be fearless when you're providing that honest feedback to somebody of color that, hey, you're not meeting the standard, but you got to do it in a way that's fair, right? Because the, right. the fit rest, the fit rep system allows for midterm counseling, and right. so and, and you you have multiple times usually when somebody is working for you, you know, hey, in the first couple of months you come up to that that midterm counseling and you're saying, hey, I, I just need you to know that you know you're doing great in these areas, but you're not doing so great in these areas. I need A, B, C from you, right? And then you have that have that conversation. You can't wait until the fit rep and then ding them. And then they go, where did that come from, boss? You never told me that I was, you know, X, Y or Z. So, yes. Tell us a little bit about your experience with that, because you said, you know, you're both prior enlisted and now a lieutenant commander. You're a nuke SWO. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you've had had to have some of those difficult conversations. How, How have those gone or how have they been avoided for you personally in your career? Um, I, I would say on one hand, I've been very fortunate in having a lot of uh, mentors, some of that I, some of that some of them I sought out on my own, uh, but mentors nonetheless that I could ask, hey, what does this mean? This just happened with my chain of command. I don't know if this was a good thing or a bad thing, and I and I either did or didn't ask for feedback because of that fear or apprehension, whatever the case may be. 
Um, and I would get some feedback and then try to move forward in that way. Um, in the instances where um, my leadership did not go that intrusive with me, um, I'll tell you, it, it, became, it became a point where I, for me, I just decided that I, can cont- I will control the things I can't control. Is really what it comes down to, and I can't I can't control if my supervisor is racist or not. I can't control if they're biased or not. Um, and I just kind of just made a decision that I just was not going to worry about that. Um, and a lot of black officers do that. They, if they if they if they love the navy, if they love serving the military, they're going to just accept that as a norm, and then continue to push forward. Um, I'll tell you for myself, uh, I remember an instance where, um, I got a particular fit rep in a command and I was, I was, uh, below the reporting seniors cumulative average. And I was like, I said, well, I'm not really sure why this is the case. This is, I've been doing A, B, C, or D and, you know, supervisor said, Hey, well, no, you're doing okay. Um, everything is just fine. Just keep doing what you're doing. So I said, okay. Um, but what I didn't know was that my superior still felt that I had shortcomings, but I didn't find out about those until after I transferred. And I'm like, so now I've missed out on a whole year of potential professional development and growth that I could have been made aware of and done something about it. But instead, I'm now taking that deficiency into my next position, even though even though I left that even though I left that command with with uh, better papers, we'll say um, by the time I transferred and overall the tour was what, what we will call consider a successful tour. Still, the feedback would have been much better in the moment instead of after the fact. And and I don't and I'm definitely not saying that that was a racist or a discriminatory act, but it's it's. To me, it's indicative of the lack of the conversations that need to happen um, when it comes to leaders being more intrusive and being fearless and just doing their due diligence for every one of the members in their wardroom and their mess on their deck plates. Um, and I would add to that. It is important for. Our leaders to want to be open. This the the construct of the Navy should facilitate what we're talking about, right? So when a superior is criticizing or providing rudder to a subordinate, it's around things that are measurable and finite, right? It's like, hey, how about you show up for shift change on time? That would be good. You know, um, how are you looking towards making rate? You know, how are you doing on your PQS? I hear that you know, your, your supervisor keeps saying that, uh, you know, you don't pay attention during the training sessions. So, you know, what are you going to do about that? Right. So that's not, none of that is racism. Um, but I think this is where the soft racism is like Bill said, there's some sort of a, a pervasive fear that even giving feedback to a subordinate about very matter of fact things could be leveraged in some sort of accusation of bias, but that's an insult to 
the minorities in ranks, right? I mean, that you don't right. accept that. I mean, sure, there's there's sure. C stories about, you know, somebody who went for the race card or somebody who played the gender card and, you know, it was a bottom swimmer that wasn't doing anything. And so she made the hotline complaint and the CEO had to speak to right. the JAG about it. But th- those are not, that's not day in and day out kind of stuff. And I, I right. feel too much that a CEO, like Bill framed it perfectly, you know, um, a CEO coming in that position already sees like a grenade with the pin pulled for no good reason mm-hmm. other than the inherencies mm-hmm. of what we're talking about. So it's right. really cowardice at the leadership level to not wade into these issues. Not, you know, I'll say use the term be colorblind because we should be colorblind, but we're not, this is the beauty of the profession. We're dealing with stuff that's measurable and success or failure is defined by the outcomes. You know, it's not, there's no opinion required. So if you've got a sailor that isn't mustering up, then you owe it to him or her to provide the corrections and not worry about some sort of weird blowback about the fact that he or she is, is, uh, you know, a minority. And, and so I, the other thing I would ask as a, as a black officer, is there some policing that goes on among the minority community to say to each other, Hey, don't, don't do that. That's not professional any more than, than having a racist supervisor's professional. Absolutely. Um, the, I would, I would frame it like this. Have, have you ever heard of, uh, the reference, the talk? No. Yeah. Imagine you haven't. So the talk, right, is when African American families spend time talking to their young sons, in some cases, their daughters, about how to interact with the police. That is a conversation that happens at a very early age, right? So the, that, that, the talk is centered around police brutality. But when we look at the systemic racism, that, that talk carries forward in every profession, regardless of the organization. If I'm, a, if I'm working at Amazon, I guarantee you there's some black professional that sees a junior black professional and say, hey, let's talk. It happens in the Navy. It happens in the Marines. It happens in the Air Force. It happens in the Army. It happens in the Coast Guard. Because that is the part, that is another layer of the burden of the African-American um, uh, uh, community. And so there is a there is a due, there is due diligence um, within the community to help each other bear that burden as best we can in those moments that are presented. Um, I remember when uh, I was leaving for boot camp in 1996, my uncle, Natchez, Mississippi, uh, he served in the Navy for four years, I believe it was four years. And I went to go see him a, m- a month before I was supposed to start boot camp. And we had a great conversation about Navy and life and everything. And when it was time for me to, to head out, he told me, never let the color of my skin be a reason I'm not successful. And I've carried that forward for the last 23 years because I, can't, so the, basically what I'm saying is I came into the Navy with at least something that somebody said, hey, It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. You're not going to be treated the same. So don't let the color of your skin be an excuse. Just flat out, just that. don't even let that happen. And that has worked out for me so far um, because going back to what I said earlier about uh, I just got to a decision point where I wasn't going to make excuses anymore and and only worry about the things I can control. That's what I've done. And I've been blessed uh, so far, you know, to even now 
you know, to be slated for for command and to head to command the shipping. It was I went from a guy just trying to get out of Mississippi as fast as I can and go see the world to uh, potentially commanding a, a, a United States Navy vessel. So I'm super, super excited, super humbled about that. Um, but I do I want to go back to one thing you said, uh, Ward, about investigations. Um, I think it's important to highlight that if we trust the investigations process with the Simeo, it's a full IG, it's filing agreements, whatever the case may be. If we trust those processes, um, as say as, as a white male to handle sexual harassment, sexual assault, alcohol, drug abuse, um, any of those type of complaints that happen in our commands, why can't we trust it for racism, whether it's soft or hard or um, implicit, explicit? Um, it's somebody pulled the race card on me as a white male or somebody pulled the race card on somebody else with a gender card. If we trust those processes for everything else. Why can't we trust them in that situation as well? Right. And and that leads to the other, another point you made where you say, well, we should be colorblind. I disagree with you on that one a little bit. Um, I think I think we are where we are now because we don't see color. Um, I think it's important to see color because seeing the color, I think, forces us to deal with the bias. Um, the if you see me as African-American and you appreciate the journey the African-American has had, then you will take that into account when you engage with me. If you don't see color and you only want to make it about the performance traits on the fitness report, that allows you to not engage me where I need you to engage me. And instead, you engage me where you feel safe when actually the conversation was supposed about making me feel safe as a subordinate. Yeah, no, I, no, no, I like I like that. I think that's right on. That that's I, I concur um, uh, unconditionally to that that pushback um, because this is sort of like the when somebody says Black Lives Matter and then somebody else says Oh, all lives matter. It's like, well, hold it. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. it's like <laughs> you're missing the point. You're missing the point willfully, <laughs> right? And that's I right. think the analogy that that I like is like if, if there's a house on fire, the firemen will go to deal with the house that's on fire. They won't go to the coldest. I can go, well, all houses matter, even the ones that aren't right. on fire, you know? And, and exactly. so I, no, I, 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 I like that. So let's, let's fast forward five, 10 years and, uh, okay. and, and Senator Walker, um, is, oh, is, is out there. <laughs> um, Senator Walker, Senator Walker from the great state of Mississippi. Um, and so you're now, you're now a, a, a national leader, right? And let's just imagine that after the dust settles on, on, all the things that seem to be imminently solvable as a result of the the, the protests and uh, the things that have happened that are tragic, you know, because I think right now we kind of feel like it's a moment where maybe we can make real steps and not just wave our hands, right? I don't know if it feels like that to you, but it kind of feels like that to me. So we're, we're, we know things that maybe we didn't before, um, you know, Juneteenth and, and different things. We're actually listening um, at, right. particularly as white Americans. We're like, well, you know, I know the Martin Luther King story and you got that holiday, so what's the problem? You know, you're like, whoa, right. never heard about Tulsa and I feel a little bit right. guilty for like, hold it. <laughs> you know, the destruction of Black Wall Street is, right. you know, just like the Holocaust. It's like this, this has just been erased for some reason. 
And so it's wow. not a level playing, playing field, right? This is not a level playing field. Um, even when on your own terms, the black community was succeeding, it was put down by the white status quo. That's, that's just mm-hmm. a fact, right? And so this gets back to your point where you're like colorblind. Well, hold it. No, no, dude. Appreciate it. But now you're just being ignorant of history. And I don't know if it's on purpose or you're just ignorant, right? So I, I agree. Um, so again, the beauty of the Navy is that, and I'll get back to my Senator uh, Walker thing in a second here, but the beauty of the Navy <laughs> is we have a, a mission that has to be accomplished. It's not a social experiment, right? So, you know, ships got to be ready to put to sea. Aircraft's, aircraft got to be able to take off and land. Subs got to be able to submerge, right? Power plants got to crank up and go. So we have to hold each other to a standard. So these problems, it's not, oh, we should solve it for the good of America. No, we have to solve it to carry out the mission. So at the original premise, I ask you to look at this in two different ways. So let me ask you to put on your black American outside of NAS Mayport. And now you're Senator Walker. Um, What is it the nation has to do? What, What is it we have to do to, if not solve it once and for all, really start to take some meaningful steps to creating equality in a real way? Wow. This is a powerful question. Um, the, and, and because you, 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 you injected it into this conversation, I'm going to use it as an analogy, um, the Holocaust. So the, we know, we, we understand the history of the Holocaust. What we also appreciate is the level at which countries taught that the Holocaust was wrong and then try to grow from that education. We're in, we are in the middle of the conversation in all of its ugliness and all of its truthfulness and all of its thorniness. We're in the middle of the conversation where we think America just might by chance, say racism is wrong and we're sorry that we did it. We don't know if we're going to get there, but to like you said, we're in a moment right now and I'm optimistic as a, as a young 40-year-old guy. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm far enough away from the civil rights movement of the 60s to not have experienced it, but I'm close to it to have an appreciation for it. Will we be, will America view racism and slavery the same in anywhere near the same way the Holocaust is talked about right now before I die? I don't know. But I'm encouraged by this conversation because like I said earlier, we have leaders saying in open forums that racism and discrimination is wrong. And so, I'm, I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful, I wanna be a part of the solutions. Um, and we need all of our, we need all Americans to want to be educated, to want to learn more, to want to do more. Because I would tell you another part of the burden is, okay, you're African-American, tell me what I should know. Well. I'm tired of that now, right? <laughs> I'm exhausted and trying to get you to listen to me. I'm at a point now where, uh, and a lot of African-Americans feel this way, that 
We need the Americans that did not learn the African-American contribution to the birth and growth of this country to have that conversation and those educations for themselves. Um, Senator Walker would definitely try to be a part of that um, at that level. If if that happened, I highly doubt it. Um, but that that's to me, that is where we end up is a national appreciation for our full contextual history and it's appreciated by all then I, I think until until that happens um i think we're, we're, there was always there there will always be more work to do and i think the navy for its part as one of the institutions defined by that larger order is trying to do the right things right now um with the CNO's task force being stood up, uh, task force one Navy being stood up. You have flag officers, you know, just flag officers asking more of the right questions, senior officers asking more of the right questions. And then it, admittedly officers and enlisted personnel too are asking, well, what should I do? Where should I go? How should I reevaluate these situations? How should I engage? The fact that those conver- those questions are being asked, um, I would tell you, I, I never thought I would see it. I'm, I, people at my age or older are just resigned to the fact of, okay, I'm going to just work really hard. I'm going to network. I'm going to seek mentorship. I'm going to do everything I can to be the representation that others need me to be, because that's another piece of it as well. If, if a underrepresented group uh, can't see themselves in something, then it's less likely that they will pursue it as an opportunity. A kid, if a kid wants to be an astrophysicist, he's going to look to another astrophysicist for motivation. He's not going to go look to the grocery clerk. So if, if I'm looking to, if, if the military wants me to want to commit to this mission, then I need to be able to see that. I need to believe that's possible. And that's even post, you know, yep, we had an African-American president. That's great. Yeah, I, and I remember being told as a kid, you can be president one day. And I didn't believe it because I never saw it before. And now that I've seen it, children believe they can. But at the end of the day, the president, that's just one job. There's millions of other jobs and, and opportunities out here that, you know, African-Americans, underrepresented communities have no idea they exist because the opportunity wasn't communicated to them. And so that, that's been my passion um, over the last few years is doing what I can as, as an African-American naval officer to support others that want to be in the military. I, I, was interesting, I was in a conversation on a Facebook group a while ago, and there was this whole big conversation about representation. This kind of ties back to the ownership at my level. And I was getting frustrated because it was, well, there's not enough black flag officers. And oh my God, what can I, why, why should I want to do it if there's nobody else there? And I'm kind of flipping my, my point, by the way. <laughs> um, I, I said, well, I can't control how many flag officers there are, but I know that there are people watching me. So I don't know how far I'm going to go. So I'm going to be the representation that I would want to see above me. Maybe there's some 
E5, E6 that wants to be an officer. And he's looking to me as a representation. So I'm going to focus. I'm going to put my energy into being the best example I can for those that are behind me. And because I can't influence what's in front of me. And I think that that's another layer of the burden is, okay. And that's why I put in the article, you know, on one hand, I'm viewed as black excellence. But on the other hand, with no with no change in conversation, I could automatically be assumed as black incompetence because the black officer that was in that spot before me was an underperformer. And now I've been labeled because of the bias and the already preconceived notions about underrepresented communities that that person brought to their military service. Yeah, the data set is small, right? So as a function of that, the needle can move wildly. And this is the beauty of being you, if you want to stand your logic on its head. Because I met you a few years ago uh, when you were working for C.N.O. Richardson, and, and you just exude competence and leadership. Right. That's just your manner. Um, and, and I'm not just saying that because you're a guest here on the Proceedings Podcast. I'm saying that because that's the truth. So if if the guy before you was was not hacking it, then you can really write the ship because they have a data set of one. So it's easily swung the other way when you show up. It's not like you're dealing with 100 guys that were incompetent and you show up. They're like, yeah, we've seen this before. Just wait, you know, and so. I think you've, you framed it just right, and we're kind of running out of time here, but you can just be you. And I know that's a huge burden, but, but you're not going to shrink from that. And so right. I think you're right. Uh, 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 E5 looks at you, and, and it's like, I could do that. He's doing it. I could do that. Um, and I, I just, I'm just saying, you're already doing it. You know, and, and uh, uh, congratulations on, on screening. Have you been slated yet? Do you know where you're going? So we're going to USS Chafee, DDG-90. She's out of Pearl Harbor now. Okay. So that's going to be a cool tour, right? Um, and uh, we look forward to, to, to that happening and, and you you letting us know how that's going, both sure. tactically and socially, right? Uh, you know, we look forward to seeing how, how things develop. Yeah, I had one more point to make and uh, just mindful of time. But uh, a couple of minutes ago, Desmond, you made the point, you know, trust the process, right? You you mentioned that there's a, you know, the Simeo process and the JAG man investigate all these different things for different problems and grievances in the, in the Navy. And I wanted to, uh, you know, Ward just made the point, you be you, right? But I wanted to, for, for people who are like I was in the Navy, a, a white officer, and on different times, I, I led uh, people of minorities, people of colors. And I would say that I, there, I have a great example of one time when I did trust the process and I really trusted my chief of staff. I had a young minority officer working for me uh, who didn't meet the standard. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was fearful of the conversation that that I needed to have with her as, for the midterm counseling. And I went to the chief of staff and I said, you know, chief of staff, I'm going to have this conversation. It's going to be a difficult conversation. I'm hopeful that she, you know, doesn't use the race card. Um, but I just want you to know that I'm about to have this kind of feedback with this person. And the chief of staff was great. He said, okay, great. Thanks for letting me know. He gave me some some pointers. I had the conversation. She did not throw the race card. Uh, she did uh, end up in tears because it was the first time that she'd had that kind of feedback, which made yes. me feel terrible, right? She, it was the first time she had that kind of feedback. But my my point to uh, to our listeners who are in sort of my shoes is as a as a naval officer, um, if you're leading and managing people who are minorities, trust the process. 
tell your chain of command, hey, I've got to have this uh, this difficult conversation with somebody. I need to let them know that they're not meeting the standard in A, B, or C, if that's true, no matter what the color of their skin is. But 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 trust the process that that the Navy will stand up for you. The Navy will say, hey, yeah, you're you're right in this case. That person maybe isn't meeting this standard, and you're right to give them that feedback, particularly early in the process. Give them yes, that feedback, give exactly. them the rudder order early enough that they can course correct so that they can make the changes. As you pointed out earlier, you, you got some feedback after you'd already left a command that would have helped you in that command and, and, and in your, uh, your future command. So anyway, that's my feedback for people who are more like me than you. For you, just keep doing what you're doing. For people who are, uh, you know, if you're a white leader in the Navy at any level, you know, trust the process and, and be be fearless to, to have the right conversations, because I think the person you're having that conversation with will appreciate your candor, will appreciate your honesty and your integrity. And it could be a good, you know, two way dialogue. And that's that's really important. And that's that's something that comes out in your proceedings article. It also came out in uh, the piece that Commander Kennedy wrote for us uh, as well. So. Uh, sadly, we have to wrap this up. So uh, last word to you, uh, Lieutenant Commander Desmond Walker, um, uh, down in Mayport and headed to command. We're really excited about that. What's what's uh, kind of coming for you in the next couple of weeks and months uh, in your career? After command, you know, it's reactor officer and, and then major command, um, maybe a joint tour in there somewhere. Um, say this is so my my career progression is so in flux right now because I'm, I'm actually still trying to negotiate the orders. Uh, so um, we'll see what happens in the next year or so. Um, but I'm I'm excited about the opportunity. I'm I'm excited I'm excited about the the opportunity to continue to serve. And um, yeah, I'm just I'm just happy. I appreciate this conversation. It was great. I learned a lot as well. And we did too. And and thanks to you for the courage to put pen to paper and commit your thoughts in writing. You know, too many people complain and don't do anything about it. This is what the Independent Forum has been for since its beginning and this is really where in these kinds of chaotic times the naval institute really does do a yeoman's job of of affecting meaningful change potentially so lieutenant commander des walker the article is the burden of a naval black officer thanks for being with us here on the proceedings podcast today thank you gentlemen i appreciate it okay that's going to do it for this episode remember victory begins at the naval institute we'll see you next time